Welcome to Book to Where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Um, I don't know if I got my week screwed up because, you know, the lazy summer podcasting made me super lazy, so I don't pay attention to things anymore. But I kind of teased something at the end of the last episode <laughs> for the next episode I vague casted. Is that what we decided it was called? Vague pod? Vague. Pod? Yeah, vague. Vague podded. Sure. Yeah, we'll call it that. Something like that. Um, a potential special guest. Well, you know what? Surprise! It's this week, so I'm going to continue to vague cast and not and not talk about who it is because that would be silly, right? To just kind of blurt it out now when we could just bring him on in a few minutes. I don't know, man. Some of the magic feels like it may have dissipated a little bit, but it's. Uh, I think it's going to be a surprise. But we'll have to at some point in the next minute or two. So I don't think that there's really much point in keeping much of a surprise anymore. Fine. I was yeah. really enjoying hoarding this information for myself. I want you to know that. I mean, we could just not introduce this person at all and see if people can just figure out who it is. I think that I think that a lot of people would figure this out pretty quickly. So yeah. uh, I guess we can do it. Um, our our special guest reviewer tonight is Craig Clevenger, who hasn't been on the show since what episode number? Thirty six or five. Thirty five or thirty six. 240-ish episodes ago, but it's uh, it's great to have him back on. Before I bring him on, Rob's going to read you this bio in weird first person. Do your best um, Craig Clevenger voice while you do this. Oh, man. This is... I, I apologize in advance, Craig. Born in Texas and grew up in Southern California. After years of dead-end jobs and publishers' rejections, I stumbled into the pre.com tech world where I spent the next decade paying my rent on time, eating regularly, and not putting pen to paper for anything creative. In 2000, I pulled the plug on my techno rat race to resume writing. All right, so apologies to Craig Clevenger. There's no way that I could um, get that, that Clevenger voice. Or oh, probably no. even like the Clevenger reading pace, but... I could tell you what, like, dead serious, though. I could tell that you were trying to do something different, um, which is great. The book we're actually reviewing this evening, Little Sister Death by William Gay. And uh, we'll probably read the synopsis in, in that author bio um, after we welcome Craig on. We always like to mix things up here. Well, it'd be nice in case he has to comment on it or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Craig, welcome back to Booked. It's been, uh, it's been some time. Um, years. I years, think. indeed. Yes. Rob, how many episodes? Um, in the it's over, it's almost two hundred fifty episodes. I want to say since we've had you on the podcast, it's just insane to think about. Yow. how time flies! This is the problem with getting well, older. It doesn't seem like it was two hundred fifty anything ago. Yeah, nothing personal. <laughs> no, no, I get it. No, no, no. The older you get, the the, the, the relatively smaller those designations of time are. So you blink. And the time you spent in high school is just like you changed haircuts a couple times. That's really all the difference you can see as an adult. That's not my best metaphor, but you see where I'm going with that. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. a concept that people have a hard time grasping. I've had to explain relativity and, and how that works on why time goes by faster as you get older or as, as you've been at a job longer. There are a lot of people that can't wrap their mind around that. Are they young people? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like, you know, when you're a kid and your mom asks you to do the dishes and you take out the trash and you, you throw a shit fit because it feels like it's a huge chunk out of your evening where now I do that stuff with my eyes closed, half asleep. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. yep. Again, not my best metaphor, but you see where I'm going. <laughs> 
<laughs> You've got time. You've got time. We got at least an hour's worth of metaphors um, that you can come up with if you want to try to top those. So. Right on. All right. So, um, again, welcome back. Thank you. I, William Gay, I was not aware that you were that you were a big fan. This is my first William Gay venture, and I think Rob's as well. Is that correct, Rob? Yeah, sad, sad to say, but oh. we've heard so much praise. Wow. Okay, this will be fun then, because I am a huge, huge fan. What I've always said is William Gay to me is like Cormac McCarthy with a good editor, and I hesitate to say that publicly because now I'm going to start getting deluged with hate mail. Um, defending Cormac McCarthy, but I just always found, you know, the prose to be very, very similar, but I just found his, I've always found his a lot more tight and specific, and I don't get, I don't get backed up on the story at the expense of the prose. I think he balances story and prose really, really well. I did have to say you're right, and I've, I've only read two Cormac McCarthy um, books, but I felt kind of what you were saying, that it, it was a little, like he tried really hard to make it really pretty, and it was at the expense of the story at times. So, um, yeah, I definitely get that, and I, I think, and I think we'll find that um, and that Rob is probably on board with saying that William Gay is definitely not in that uh, in that realm of writer that gets too wordy. No, it's tight, man, but- and damn good. But for, for the record, I should say in my defense that The Road is one of my all-time favorites, probably on my desert island list. So, you know, put your hate mail writing pencils down, <laughs> whoever might be listening to this. Are there are there a lot of Oprah Book Club books that are on your on your list, your desert list? Oh, that's where you're going to go, huh? You're going to do <laughs> you that? You know, I, I read be? it the week it came out because <laughs> at that time in my life I was at um, Barnes & Noble like on Tuesdays and I would just browse what was new and I go, Oh, this looks really interesting. I've heard of Cormac McCarthy and I read it and I was, uh, you know, praising it to other people I know that read. And then goddamn, it was like a month later, I walked in the bookstore and it had a big sticker on it that said Oprah book club pick. <laughs> and I felt like it kind of cheapened the book for me a little bit. So I don't know. If yeah, I, I, I got, I got no ax to grind with Oprah. She got, she got, you know, a lot of, you know, exposure for some books that may not have otherwise had it. And, uh, I just I just resent her for having all of that time to interview Cormac McCarthy. I think the third interview he's done in his entire life, and I just wish somebody would say, what's up with your commas? What's your problem? And she didn't. <laughs> Completely wasted opportunity there. Really, it's the apostrophes that are the issue, aren't they? There we go. All right. Well, uh, we'll see how William Gay holds up to that. Um, here's a quick bit about the author from Rob. This is from Amazon. Oh, yeah. Okay. William Gay was born in Hohenwald, Tennessee. After high school, he joined the United States Navy and served during the Vietnam War. For many years, he made his living as a carpenter, drywall hanger, and house painter before publishing. In 1998, his first novel, The Long Home, at the age of 57. He went on to publish the story collection, I Hate to See That Evening Sun Go Down, and two novels, Provinces of Night and Twilight in His Lifetime, and I believe now... Posthumously, we will see not just um, Little Sister Death, but I believe two more. Yeah, my understanding is two more. But I wonder if one was a re-release of a... uh, I think they're all non-release books. I'm not 100% on that. That's going to merit some conversation. Um, We had it about David Foster Wallace's book, The Pale King, and I I get the feeling we're going to talk a little bit about how finished of a novel was this, um, probably a little later after we we talk about the book itself. I believe that he had 
a, a novel in progress with McAdam Cage when he died. That I don't know what stage it was at when he died, but my hunch is that it's not Little Sister Death. Um, or maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe that was Provinces of Night. I don't. I should really have done some fact checking on this. Um, but I, at the back of this one, it talks about how they found some stuff in his, amongst his papers, and more will be forthcoming. But I didn't see a particular number there. Um, yeah, I looked on Dzang's website, and I know they had acquired more than one book, but I don't remember. It's possible. If we know whether the long home is out of print or not, I think they may have acquired that for re-release. But I know that there's a, at least another book that wasn't released. So I think I can, with some confidence, say that there's going to be another unreleased book, at least one more. Uh, re- we're, we were all in research mode right before we jumped onto the <laughs> right before we jumped onto the podcast tonight. It's very obvious. So here is the synopsis for Little Sister Death, which, by the way. Um, it's one of those books that does have like a legitimate reveal of the title at some point in the book. I'm just saying that. That may or may not come back come up later on. David Bender is a young, successful writer living in Chicago and suffering from writer's block. He stares at the blank page, and the blank page stares back, until inspiration strikes in the form of a ghost story that captivated him as a child. With his pregnant wife and young daughter in tow, he sets out to explore the myth of Virginia Beale, Fairy Queen of the Haunted Dell. But as his investigation takes him deeper and deeper into the legacy of blood and violence that cast its shadow over the Beale farm, Bender finds himself obsessed with a force that's as wicked as it is seductive. A stirring literary rendition of Tennessee's famed Curse of the Bell Witch, Little Sister Death skillfully toes the line between Southern Gothic and horror, and further cements William Gay's legacy as not only one of the Southern South's finest writers, but among the best that American literature has to offer. Yeah, pretty accurate on the uh, on the synopsis. Um, before we get into the story, I guess we should talk about there is um, an intro um, to this that is written by, and again, it's all the preparation, Tom Franklin, um, who was a friend of Williams um, before he died, like really did a great job of, of painting a picture, for me at least, of a writer having not known anything about him prior to reading this book. Um, it really, I thought, gave me a nice frame of reference as to whose mind this came from like we portrayed him as a fairly simple guy um who liked to write um but there were enough little tidbits those friendly tidbits that that made me feel um you know maybe a little more attached to the author than than clearly than i would have been had this introduction not have existed yeah i remember he said a couple of people had described william gay as as looking like a man who's been shot at (laughs) yep that's all you need to know. I think mm-hmm. that tells you a lot right there. Absolutely. And that whole thing about um, how he didn't like engaging socially made me feel very antisocial um, after I read that. And I just wanted to sit and read, which was perfect because then I sat and read. Rob, you read this in, in pretty much a single sitting. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, this was a one sitting book for me. So there you go, and and maybe maybe that uh, maybe it had a, its desired effect. And a restless night. I could not sleep last night when I finished the book for like hours, and um, I didn't think it was because of the book, but I'm starting to think it was because of the book. This um, this book starts off um, with a, and it it 
the book moves back and forward in time a little bit. So we get to see um, some of the previous victims of the haunting and, and maybe even where it started towards the beginning. So it starts off in 1785 um, with uh, a, a birth and, and an abduction of a doctor to, to deliver a baby. Um, but I mean, this is one of the most brutal starts to a book. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Lords of Salem, that um, Rob Zombie's movie made novel. Uh, oh, I'm glad you said it. that because if you didn't, I was going to bring that up because I was like, man, they really. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't screw around. So I guess, I mean, it is like a like a page 15 thing. So um, Jesus Christ, like, like this baby is born and they throw it into a fire. So, you know, you, you don't start off a book much, much rougher than that. Yeah, in fact, the the you know when I I, I got to that part, I, I read that opening bit. That was the first part I wrote, read, and after that, I just decided it was not going to be nighttime reading for me. Usually, when I read right before I go to bed, I would save it for, you know, daytime. And uh, I was I don't know. For me, I I, I thought as as harrowing as other parts of the book were. After that, nothing quite measured up. I was I was not as horrified as I was in those first fifteen pages for any part of the book. After that, I agree with that. And my thought about that too is, I, I imagine that was to, as we'll see throughout the story, that was probably to legitimize the um, the haunting of the specific person, um, like kind of giving a reason for it. But damn. Damn, dude, that was that was rough in a way that yeah we didn't see again. Except for, and I, I cannot wait to read this quote. Except for, in a Winnie the Pooh cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And in, in William Gates' defense, it was not graphic. It was not a, a, a laborious description of of the sounds it made burning or what it looked like or anything like that. He simply describes the act very abruptly. And uh, the doctor's reaction. Um, so he didn't really rub your face in it. You know, it's interesting that you say that, though, because now that I think about it, I'm trying to think of other events that. So when you say, and they threw the baby in the fire, period, I don't know that you had to go deeper than that, that there's any <laughs> other. You, so you say, okay, you know, I smashed someone in the head with an axe. Hmm. Okay, you know, if it was more descriptive, maybe it would be a little more horrifying. But I think that you don't even have to go any farther than that to really get a, a, a gut reaction out of somebody. That might be potentially one of the most horrible things, at least that I could think of, to do, you know, as a, as a villain. I'm doing quotes as some type of villain in a book. I don't, I don't think you can get worse than that. And, and the reader, I think, is already on edge with the scene surrounding the birth with the circumstances surrounding the birth the, the doctor's been forcibly abducted out to the middle of nowhere and this woman is in this girl rather is in this creaky uh rundown cabin i'm not sure if there's even a fire in the room it's just a just a wooden box with some candlelight and a and a hard bed so already you're you're expecting you know, things to be done with rusty tools and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Again, he's mercifully oblique about, you know, how, how he describes things. Um, but I, I was already on edge just, just reading, you know, the details of this, this you know, 18th century rural birthing procedure. And then it gets thrown into the fire. 
<laughs> so, yeah. Hell, and you laugh, you sick bastard. Hell of a start, man. I got to tell you. <laughs> I a sick um, bastard. Well, and here's it. So occasionally we make a decision to read a book, and I've said this before, and we decide based on who wrote it or things we've heard or promises we've made or whatever, and I don't really read um, the synopsis for them. So, it, you know, if something gets pitched to us, we read the synopsis. Hey, what is this about? Does it sound interesting? We hear a new William Gay book posthumously published, and we go, listen, we've never read this guy. We know lots of people who respect him. We have to read this book. I had no idea what this was about. I had no idea that it was going to be a, a horror or haunting slant to it. So, I mean, it was really unexpected for me as I'm reading this. Um, you know, had this have been written by, I don't know, Clive Barker maybe, you know, I would have expected something like that to happen. And it just it, it caught me off guard and um, in, in, a, in a very good way. So it, was, it, it put me off, off my um, balance a little bit, which is a great way to read a book. You shouldn't be really balanced when you're reading something. I think it's great to be surprised occasionally. Agreed. I'm not sure if there's openings I should say anything or not. <laughs> you can, you're welcome to say something when you when you when you want to say something, and if not, okay. uncomfortable silence is Rob's job. So, okay. um, so after that little the baby throwing in the fire chapter, I guess we can call it. Um, the book picks up in the it jumps to the 1980s, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, there's that little outtake of when Bender's a kid. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Which, which so so there's a lot of and again I don't I don't really want to go spoiler free because there's some interesting things that we should probably talk about. Um. Yeah. So I, I. You know what? I'm glad that you said that too because, um. So we jump forward to uh what would be the protagonist for the book more or less um David Binder, um he's the young writer from Chicago. Uh, but we start out with a little interlude from his childhood, like Livia said, where. Um, it's basically talking about his his brief interactions with what might be supernatural. So at one point he saw a woman sitting in, in the house that he was growing up in, or I don't know if it was a house he was vacationing in, but um, like a, a very proper woman, obviously dressed from a, another time, um, that later on turns out she wasn't really there. And then it was warm, like there was rocks dropping on the, the house on a different occasion. And they were like white rocks that were warm to the touch, or something like that. Um, is that that was the extent of of kind of his look back upon his interaction with supernatural, right? And it's presented in a way I think that um, made me feel that whatever future hauntings he um, comes across, that he's just I don't know. I mean, I've heard the term, you know, he's a sensitive. You know, he's just sensitive to these types of things, which would play well. Like he's going to investigate this thing and he's already, I don't know, supernaturally predetermined to see ghosts more than another person or, or you know, kind of like cats and dogs or something like that. Um, but some other things happen. And I don't know how much detail we'll talk about later. And we'll, we'll, we'll let that go until, you know, it really comes up naturally in conversation. But I felt like we were being prepared for him to be receptive to that type of thing, I guess. And it was it was presented as, um, it was kind of one of the it was I, I liked it a little bit. It had a nice touch because it was basically presented as like uh, sometimes if you really think about something, the beginning of a story starts at a different place than you thought it did, and that's kind of how this was presented. And it was reflecting back on his supernatural encounters as a kid. Yes, and I I, I like that the uh, <clears throat> the supernatural encounters weren't. There was the ghost, but she was very downplayed. It was just a woman who looked flesh and blood who was there one minute and not there the next, and he was 
too young and unfamiliar with the surroundings to think anything else of it. So there was no, nothing floating, no, no voices or blood leaking from the walls. And, and, uh, the rain of rocks, I, I first assumed were, were, it was just a hailstorm, you know, hailstones that lie large are not unusual. And, uh, he describes them as white, but then he says they're warm to the touch. So having a rain of rocks, which is vaguely biblical, sort of was nice instead of his childhood filled with you know floating dishes and and cryptic messages written backwards on mirrors and things or whatever happens in a haunting i i don't really know actually <laughs> don't want to know right is more accurate i don't want to know what actually happens i'm happy right, watching yeah, it on it the learning channel or something um so yeah, so that's the setup, and then we move into the 80s, and most of that's kind of covered in the synopsis. Um, he's written a book; it was very successful. He's trying; he writes a second book that is not well received at all, um, and into, works with his agent. His agent says, "Hey, just knock out a quickie horror novel. They're pretty big nowadays. Um, we'll get you some cash to keep you going, and you can continue to work on the big project." Um, and uh, Bender does some research. And he goes to a bookstore and he hits the occult section and he comes across a book and I, I apologize, I don't remember what the name of the book is, but he finds a you know documentary book about nonfiction book about this um, this haunting of uh, the uh, Virginia Beale, Fairy Queen of the Haunted Dell, and he decides that he needs to write an updated version, maybe a version that's a little more in depth, and he moves his uh, his young family, his wife and his young daughter. Um, out to and is able to rent a home on the old Beale farm. And that's pretty much, you know, a pretty solid intro. And after that, there, you know, people can probably figure now we're in the meat of the story. It's just life on a haunted farm. I guess you really didn't need anybody to fill that part in for you, though, did you? I, I kind of have a question to pose as we've got into um, the main body of the story. Um, understanding that we, we already said that the explanations of the supernatural kind of mundane in the beginning of the book um i feel like that the the backstory we got about the the beale um haunting and stuff also seemed quite mundane um and even the early interactions with the property itself weren't super like blood and gore horror story are you guys with me on that yeah, a lot of lot of noises and <clears throat> um, the you know the the phantom half dog sighting and uh, more noises sound you know uh, rat infestations that kind of come and go but again no floating dishes or blood leaking from the walls. So what's what's more terrifying? So as a kid, you know, watching horror movies and reading horror books, blood flowing from the wall would have been the really scary part. But as an adult and reading this and, and some of the things that happened to various characters, and we'll, we'll probably touch on the flashbacks a little bit. You know, at one point, there's there's a guy who sees a very attractive flesh and blood in quotes woman who's talking to him. And he, he's, he's like, man, this chick's really hot. You know, I, it, to me as an adult, that was almost more terrifying because if it was a girl floating ghostily through the glen, I could be like, holy shit, it's a ghost. I'm just going to run for my life. But now you have actual interaction with someone you think is real, which in some ways as an adult is more scary to me than the floating plates and stuff that would have terrified me as a kid. 
I think so. I mean, the uh, if, if we're talking about supernatural stuff, you know, if we're talking about horror where it's just a slasher, well, of course, a guy out there with a hockey mask right. and mm-hmm. a machete is going to be kind of unsettling. Um, but in the supernatural stuff, for me, it's not the overkill, but whenever there's there's hints of it or or anything that that throws into question your long and hard-earned understanding of the world, anything like that, for me, is a lot more frightening. I'll go with that. And also, there's just kind of the consideration that... Um, so a lot of the... I mean, shit does get a little bit wild, um, and people do die in points, and we'll talk about that, but a lot of the the more common interactions with supernatural um, or ghosts or, like, the the woman that seems flesh and blood that doesn't exist is all real enough where it causes you to kind of ju- question your sanity a little bit. Like, is it something weird that's going on on this property, or am I just kind of going nuts? I personally don't want to go nuts, so that, yeah... That definitely does freak me out, like the idea that I could have a whole conversation with someone and then everybody could be like, what are you talking about? There was nobody there. That that mm-hmm. That's the really, like, stomach-dropping terror. Which which adds another layer of terror for everybody else, right? Because if, uh, if there is no haunting, but somebody is losing their shit and everybody else is stuck with that person in the middle of nowhere... That's that's a very real fear for those people. I mean, Stephen King's done this more than once, right? With The Shining in particular. Oh, it came up. Livius, are we going to talk about The Shining? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about The Shining. So. Do you guys have money on that? Like, whether or not I would bring that up, it sounds like. No, it just came up in our casual conversation before recording that, that had a Shining kind of feel to it. Like, uh, from the, just the basic structure of being out in this building that's not where you live that's in kind of in the middle of nowhere you know a father a wife a small kid um being on property that has kind of a you know a life of its own and stuff there was definitely some similarities someone dying by an axe yeah well was it was it similar to the shining or is the shining just a particular notable example of that that set of tropes. I mean, I think Stephen King's done that more than once. I could be wrong. I haven't read too much of him. Um, but I, I can vaguely recall a number of, you know, films or books I've read where those tropes are in place. You've got the, you know, innocent family kind of isolated in the middle of nowhere before before everything hits the fan. So I think that, and this ties into a conversation I was having um, with someone recently. There's a movie coming up, and I don't remember what it is, but it's a Victorian era. They move into a house that people have died in, and it's haunted. And I've said, you know, I always really like these these old-timey ghost stories. And I think, here's my thought. It's not that it hasn't been tried in the modern day, but... Um, you know, as I had said before, you know, you're running the other way. Well, today we'd hop in a car and drive away or, you know, there are a variety of things we do. And that's why you don't get a lot of haunted stories that take place in a in a skyscraper full of apartments because there's people everywhere that you could reach out to for help. You know, there's the next door neighbors and stuff. So you almost have to have an isolation element or a time element to it to make it more terrifying, right? Because if we we're reading a book about a haunted apartment that's, you know, 60 stories on Lakeshore Drive in Chicago – 
you'd be like, well, there's neighbors that could come help. There's, you know, there's, there's police responders, there's all types of things. So I think that in some ways you're right. The shining is probably the most similar because it's one of the more well-known hauntings or a a story. Shining example. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Very nice. Uh, There it is. No, no, it's not very good. Please cut that out. Please don't broadcast (laughs) that. No, no, go, go, whatever. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry, Livius, as you were. It's It's an important element, I think. Now, I say that, and I recently watched the movie Unfriended, I guess a couple months ago or whenever it hit video on demand, which I loved. And the whole thing was it was all technology. It all took place on a computer screen. So there's a way to do that. But I think very classically, you're right, it doesn't belong to to Stephen King. It it probably belongs back to, oh, God, I I don't know who wrote the first ghost story, because the first ghost story, I guarantee you, happened a lot like this. You know, rural area. There's a couple people. There's nowhere to run. Um, you know, so it probably started hundreds of years ago, but yeah, I did see the similarities in this to the shining. We're watching somebody, not just somebody watching several people through flashbacks and seeing their personality be changed by a haunted house, area, farm, property, Mm -hmm. goat, whatever you want to call it, how that takes them from being Rob said it earlier. And I don't know if it was intentional. I goes, yeah, you know, kind of the somewhat protagonist because yeah, you're, he's who we're following and he's who we're rooting for. But through the course of the book, he's not the most likable guy in the world. So, yeah, you know, well, and in the house, the house or property is such a character of its own. And it is it is what survived the different generations of the story that I find it to be kind of one of the biggest characters in the book. Um, To Craig's point, though, about The Shining, I guess The Shining would be like the um, uh, the Kleenex, like the brand name that everybody uses for. A generic thing or coke very um, true good point the other extreme example is is the first alien film which if you look at it and, and many others have said this is not my original idea but it's basically a haunted house film in space which sounds like a bad screenplay pitch but that's really what it is so if you want isolation space is a good way to get it see now hellraiser 7 took place in outer space Okay. <laughs> I didn't get past the that's, first one. That's okay. So. okay. You know what? I've never seen Alien or Aliens. So when someone says, like, stuff in space, I'm like, like, Freddy in outer space? Or J- was it Jason, it was Jason in outer in space? space? Yeah, like like that one, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> but, you um, know, the, the other thing to consider is that is that I, I don't know how many generations. It's probably fairly recent. But, you know, all of us are, are, are of a time where you move out of your parents' house at X age, or you go off to college, or you take a job at another city, and uh, and that's why we have storage units in Facebook. We don't have generations of people on a single property, so the chances are that your condo that you're renting may have had a couple of tenants prior, but nobody lived there long enough to die in there. So this this idea that houses had generations living them it was it was inevitable that somebody was going to die in that house we didn't whisk them off to hospitals and kind of you know sanitize the whole thing so i I think part of that is is a little alien to people now but that's also part of the appeal and maybe why the haunted house story works that's a strong point that you make Mm -hmm. had not thought of that do you you know what the the law is in illinois because in california or at least parts of it 
they have to disclose if someone died in a place. A realtor has to disclose if somebody died in the in the residency within X amount of time of it being on market. I I don't know what it is, but I suddenly think that California just got a little weirder because that almost did that almost imply that the state of California sanctions things like hauntings. <laughs> <laughs> like the um, ghost can pull out his permit and say, hey, fuck off, I'm legal, well, you know, you got a problem, let's go to court. Right? Well, like, we would have to assume, like, okay, so one of two things happens. Either somebody has died there, and ghost it may have been permit. of a, a horrific disease that, you know, that you don't want to live there because, who knows, you know, that person died of X, Y, and right. Z, and that's in the air. Or, you got to tell them someone died there because, fuck, that person might have not really left. And I, th- I think that's that's the the, the thinking behind the, that particular law. I don't know. I could be wrong. I, I do know that years ago, when I was uh, looking for an apartment, I did have, you know, the the, the agent say to me, "So I'm, I'm I have to disclose to you that a woman did die in this place." And I said, "Okay, whatever." I I, I felt <laughs> bad that she was in that position to have to disclose that. Can I get a fifty dollar a month discount because of that? <laughs> like, you're like, do you have any apartments that more than one person died in? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that there's some sort of disclosure thing. Uh, it, I think it's a kind of, I think it's kind of a universal, I've heard of stuff, but then I've never been in the position to have someone tell me, like disclose the way they have to you. So I don't know for sure. But um, So yeah. I, I don't know if you, it's so slightly off topic, but not really, and you can, I, I don't have to tell you guys what to, what to cut or not, but um, I've posted some pictures on Facebook of, of a very large, very old house in an undisclosed location that I have access to that I've been practicing photography in. And oh, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, 6,000 square feet, staircases galore, just all kinds of stuff in there, and uh, I have been challenged a number of times to spend the night there alone, and I am, I am a Died in the wool skeptic, don't believe in any of that, but I also know that my imagination borders on insanity. So I, I'm certain I would start hearing shit or seeing shit if I were there by myself. So I've always said, no, I will, no, not doing it. So what I'm hearing is road trip to California, sleepover <laughs> in a haunted house with Craig Clevenger. It could happen. It could. Ha- I have actually. I have spent the night there once. Uh, a friend and I crashed their house sitting for the place while the owners were gone, um, but uh, not done so by myself. But uh, yeah, come on out if you're here. You know, while it's still an escrow, I can get you inside there. Oh, Pavius. <laughs> I honestly, I've always <laughs> thought about. Um, I actually have a an, an acquaintance who is a, um, a supernatural investigator. <sighs> Like the yeah. kind you see on TV. And I've always said, because he said, hey, anytime you want to tag along. And I've always thought, yeah, you wouldn't catch me dead in a place by myself. But if I had like a decent group of people to go with, I would totally do that for the experience. Like that's something I would I would like to do. Uh, e- either sleep in a haunted house or go on a ghost investigation or, or whatever. But uh, I don't know how hardcore a skeptic I am. I like to think I'm a skeptic. But yeah, there's times where, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying, Craig, that, you know, if I'm just home alone and I'm staring at the ceiling for long enough and I hear something, I can convince myself that that open door to the bedroom is going to turn into paranormal activity. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I get that winding yourself up over one little thing. Once you get your mind on it, it, it happens to me. Um, not frequently, thank God, but often enough that I know I'm susceptible. That is truly the curse of an active imagination. Um, back to the book? 
Yeah, a little bit back to the book. All right, so we do see um, a couple more flashbacks. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but we do go back and see a former successive tenant of the Beale Farm, an Owen Swa. Swa, another weird name, S-W-A-W, Swa, Swa. I'm yeah, gonna keep a lot, lot of W's. Yeah. You got Owen, you got a lot like three W's in that name. That takes that's commitment. But the the way it's spelled, you don't have to say swa twice. <laughs> that's that's true. It's that, never repeated. That's I don't right. Know if yeah, you're reading it that way, but you kept yeah, going. It's not swa, like swa. Kegel. It's like is that Kegel? Coggle? Kegel? How am I supposed to pronounce this? Yeah, swa is pretty straightforward. And, and it's funny because and I guess, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess a lot of people don't get a chance to talk with others about the books they're reading, because I never really thought about how you pronounce anything until I knew I was going to have to say it out loud at some point. <laughs> like, I see the letters, and, and they don't have to sound a certain way in my head. Like, that's his last name, and I can identify it by seeing those four letters. But we go back to um, visit with him, and, uh, and you know, no, no shock here, he is haunted. Um, we touched on a little bit, like, he sees actually physical beings much much like um david did when he was a boy and uh let's just say shit goes down and he winds up going nuts and uh and and bad things happen to him and his family i think we can tell what happens right yeah i guess it's yeah. early enough in the story so essentially um owen swa is <laughs> swa swa is um employed by the Beale family to uh, manage some of the farm uh, farmland and he is allowed to live on the house in the house with his family he's got four daughters and a wife and um, he is the type of person who uh, before getting this opportunity was just as, as broke as the, as you get and um, you know kind of too worthless to have regular work and you know just in abject poverty so this was a great opportunity for him he got to live in um a, a nice house and have um access to the the rubber tired wagon which was a big deal at the time this is the 1930s and so it was a big step up for him and all he had to really do was maintain and harvest uh crops which uh, with his deadbeat daughters he's got these four daughters who are like all teenaged um, who all they end up doing is going out and having sex with the the boys, right? Yeah, pretty except much. For the, except for the youngest one, um, he starts out being very happy to be in this position. But as time goes on, the the pressures of of the farm and and the lack of help from his family kind of puts him in a sour place. He's drinking all the time, and then this this haunted. Here, here's the thing. The house definitely has a personality in this book, but the property overall is haunted. Are you in line with me on that? There's some sort of entity tied to this area that does directly communicate and affect people. Oh, yes, absolutely. And it starts to kind of whisper yeah. in his ear a little bit about things to... Like, it sees it sees him in trouble and, and starts kind of nudging him in a direction and in one drunken outburst this okay we need to talk about this because he's he's having a visit from one of those flesh and blood young women who is very beautiful and and very sexually forward um multiple times to the point where um he basically when he goes to sleep at night waits to see this girl in his dreams kind of it's a little bit confusing but at one point 
am I wrong in thinking he kind of comes out of the spell of the dream because he's being hit by his wife because he's having sex with his daughter? Yeah, there, there's there's um the 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 dream really starts to overlap with what with with his with his real life because he thinks he's having sex with this strange mysterious flaxen-haired woman and then he snapped out of it when she, you know, hits him in the back of the head with a hoe handle. And I remember in the dream he w- walks out to the woodshed and sees her there and has sex with her there. And then that night, because he starts going to sleep earlier and earlier because he wants to have this very vivid dream again, his wife says, I've seen you going out to the woodshed. Do you have a bottle hidden in there or something? So so there, there's something in between dreaming and being awake, and yet it's not sleepwalking. And it's, it's a very hazy midpoint that I, I think worked quite well. So I that's agree. the off balance part I was talking about too. Is is sometimes, and even in in Binder's time, there are times where you know he's dreaming, but then the next sequence he's awake, and you're not even really sure for for a time what's you know what's what's real, quote unquote real, from the outside looking in, and what's going on just in his head. But yeah, Rob, I read it the way you did. Yeah, it's all very well executed. But um, the reason that I wanted to at least make sure that I was on the same. Um, page with with you guys about what probably happened is because the result is his wife uh, like Craig said hits him with the hoe handle and he basically takes an axe and just buries it in her head and then goes nuts and goes and kills three of his four daughters and that's kind of the end point oh and then kills himself mm-hmm. and that's that's the end point of his story and history but it's referred back to on several occasions and most characters do kind of pop up in different ways but um it it's a part of the story that comes up in conversation with the the townspeople in the area of the Beale farm with the Binder family uh David but also his wife Corey at different points too so they basically said you heard what happened you know later on right so it's kind of a big a big part of the history of the of the property and kind of um, and the example of, of the haunting having an effect on people that weren't the Beale family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We agree. We're all in agreement. <laughs> we get one more flashback, <clears throat> which is a kind of um, covers a, a number of years, but it's, um, it's the Beals um, from the 1830s and 1840s. Um, not... I don't know, experiencing some of the same things, but really experiencing a far more overt ghost in that, you know, Robert said, you know, whispering in, in, in Swaswa's ear. Um, this is like a ghost openly addressing like parties of people. So you get some more weird stuff there, which I don't know how much time we want to spend on, on that storyline. But so it does go back even further to examine another haunting and this one of genuine Beals. Now, did we were the original people Beals? Are we? Or is that where we're at? The seventeen eighty five, the baby burners. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And my understanding, the way I read that section you just described of of the 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 full bore haunting, uh, you know, again, like you said, to, to crowds of people in this house. 
my understanding was that that was that was the original haunting. That's what started it all. That's that's the haunting that that preceded everything else that was probably instigated by the baby burning a generation before. But that's the haunting. That's that was the beginning of it. That's how I took that. Yep, I agree. And if you ask me, damn fascinating. Um, some of the most interesting because it was it was interesting to it was interesting to read as a story but also like the way that it was told was almost like a um like an examination of what a haunting is like which i thought was cool yeah and there's a part and i believe it's in that section where the the ghost or whatever you want to call it itself kind of acknowledges that it's not i don't know if sentient is the right word, but there's a part where the ghost basically acknowledges that it's not really sure what's going on all the time. It talks about its awareness of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Like it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to see the birth. Now, I, I guess we, we've, we've gone, I mean, I think we're, we're pretty well into, into, you know, spoiler territory, right? Who's, who's the haunting? Is it the baby? Is it the mother of the baby? What do we think? Do we have an opinion? I mean, there is no, uh, let, let's go this way. As far as I'm concerned, there is no right answer because it's not actually explicitly told in the book. But if we're talking about it, what do you guys think? Well, that that's – see, I don't know. And that's one of the things I, th- I mentioned in the email to you guys. That's one of the things that really made – that gave me a sense that this this was not a complete William Gay book. I think the story was complete. I just don't think he'd he'd finished writing it. There, there's a lot of of really bizarre loose ends in this, and and that's the first of them. That there's never a clear link between the baby burning <clears throat> and and the voice that follows a generation later. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that if if some someone is being haunted in, in retribution, then then the ghost would know that. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Uh, yeah, I don't have an opinion as to as to you know who the voice is, if it's any one particular person, and and that's one of the things that made me feel like well, was still working on this when he died. Mm-hmm. There's that, and then there's another point I'm going to bring up, and it's it's um, weirdly a small snippet of the book, but it ties back to David's original encounter with a with a the supernatural when he's a child maybe ties in a little bit with this in that there's a part where Corey flashes back to her father's death, which is mentioned throughout the book. And then this is pretty late in the book, but she flashes back to them going and staying with him while he's sick. And the sister is taking care of her um, hotel that she owns with her husband in Florida. And they're in the room and they're having sex and there's a knock at the door and she assumes it's her father because it's the only other person in the house. And it's a fairly persistent knock, but Corey's the only one that hears it. There's a knock on the wall from the other side of the room. Or I'm sorry, on the wall, yes. So but so here we have she's the only one that hears it. She actually gets mad at David who doesn't stop having sex with her because I got the impression he didn't understand that there was some sense of urgency to not, you know, that something else was going on that she needed to attend to. So what we have is 
David dealing with a ghost. We have Corey at some point in her life dealing with a ghost. She finds out her father's dead, that he has already died um, when she finally gets out of the room and that it, it, it wasn't him knocking. And that she's, you know, William mentions in the book that through Corey's eyes that they never talked about the incident again. So David never really acknowledges it. So to me, it seemed like Corey had a supernatural experience too. I don't know. And this is the other reason that, that I also felt it was unfinished. So you have all these different threads. So maybe the ghost is haunting David and Corey, and we would have found out down the road that they're descendants of the doctor at the beginning, or somehow they're related to the Beale family and didn't know it. Or we just have a really weird story about some people who are super sensitive to ghosts all kind of ending up in the same place. Well, my take on my take on to answer your original question of who's the haunt and, and, I think that this ties in with what Craig was saying about there's a lot of uncertainty here is that my general feeling when I walked away from the book was there's not much cause for what happens that any kind of haunting that happens. They're just like, we have enough weird shit that goes on in our lives. That's good and bad that could stir up shit around us. So if there's like a a particularly weird area, that's got some sort of supernatural, tie to it and I show up with all my my baggage and fucked up life, that could be enough to make weird things start happening. That's kind of the feeling I got generally about the book. But it could just be because there were some loose ends that weren't kind of tied together. Part part of the reason I'm I'm fixated on on thinking this book isn't wasn't his final draft is is because having read some of his other stuff he is he has pretty clear moral lines in his books and and that's not the right phrase but william gay always brings a sense of closure to things not with neat bows cuz this is a guy who writes about babies being thrown in the fire but he does bring things complete and so there were a lot of incomplete things in this in this story for me that did not seem incomplete or open-ended for the sake of ambiguity or, or or leaving the reader off balance they were things i think he he my hunch is that he would have revisited again having having read his other stuff where where all ends were closed everything is everything is pulled together and there's a very very clear outcome from whatever was put in motion at the beginning of the book. This issue with like, what is the haunting? What is the source of it? Or what is the haunting itself? Um, he may have been, you know, modeling it very, very closely after the original legend, um, the actual real life legend, the, the bell haunting, not the Beale haunting, I guess. But still, it just, it's one of the many things that nags at me that lets me think that this book was due for a few more drafts. The, um, and I guess we can kind of move, unless you guys have anything else specifically from the story you want to talk about, we can kind of start to move towards the ending. Yeah, we, we hit story pretty hard, I'd say. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's... Well, it, I mean, if I, if I may, mm-hmm. right out of the dust jacket copy, you know, you mentioned, they mentioned uh, his, his pregnant wife and daughter. His wife and daughter play into the story as as they should because they're there. But the wife's pregnancy really doesn't had had she not been pre- i mean i can see a, a horror novelist having a woman that's a particularly vulnerable character 
Um, and there's all sorts of directions you can go in this genre with a pregnant woman. But her pregnancy was of very little consequence, if any at all, in the story. That just seemed a little odd to me. Um, there's uh, the character, Kegel, who, who talks about Owen Swaw, who gives him the Owen Swaw story. Um, he knew Owen Swaw. And he mentions, he tells Bender that, you know, yeah, he went crazy and took an axe to his family. One of the daughters survived. And he briefly mentions that, you know, she was put up for adoption. But the, the, that girl was well into, pu- you know, or at least on the edge of puberty when this happened. So it's not like she would need a closed adoption as an infant or something. This notion of like a surviving member of this family who were violent victims of this haunting he never goes back to that's that's the first place i would run to if i were writing a book about this i would track that woman down but we never learn if you know what became of her other than she was put up for adoption and that's it well i'm going to take issue with that that? (laughs) there is well there is kind of there is kind of a, a, a like a postscript on that but it's so benign um do you remember toward the end of the book when um Binder talks about being out in the forest and introducing him to him some, himself to someone and the guy beats him up. Right. That's the son of Swa's daughter, surviving daughter. Okay, I I I saw that. It just it it just felt like it felt like the surviving daughter could have been a character. He could have found her in a home somewhere <laughs> oh, yeah. or something, you know. It just it seemed to me a lot to be let go and and i think that character's name was aaron i think you're right there, there's a aaron swad there's a there's a brief passage from his point of view he was virtually stalking the bender family and and william gay makes a point of having him sort of drooling over over cory cory bender his wife mm-hmm. yep um, I mean, he's a real malevolent threat, and short of short of knocking David Bender around, we never see him again. Yeah. And I, I think maybe there was. I'll, I'll pause if you guys want to cut this out. If it's too much of a spoiler, but I'm wondering the fires that happened during that heat wave. Did he start one of them? Because it mentions he burns people's, you know, he burns right. the guy's barn down. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of that. I just the story comes to an abrupt halt, shifts gears into. Aaron Swaw's point of view, and he is a malevolent, yeah. malevolent person. He just has nothing but hate and bile for the world, and he is falling David Bender and his family, and that's the last we see of him. I 100% agree. It, 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 if there was one very obvious loose end, it is that the Swaw, the the following generation of Swaz. Yeah. Yeah. The book does end um, very abruptly. <laughs> After a dance. After a dance, of all things. <laughs> and some weird shit with, like, the brother-in-law. Um, it ends Who really... I love, love the brother-in-law. Oh, tell us more. He was such an absolute worthless bastard, but he was painted, actually, I think, more colorfully than David Bender was. Yep. I'll, I'll agree with that, yeah. And and actually, that's um, in wrap-ups, and, and Rob had asked me how I felt about the book because I'd finished it um, a few days ago. And, and if I had to pick one bone with the book other than – and I, I can't pick – I mean, it's hard. We know 
that this was published and there's a good chance that this was not the the final draft and you know all evidence kind of points to that um so you know you don't I can't fault it that much for for that. It, it hurts as a reader to to read an unfinished work because yeah, I wanted to see more about the swaz. I wanted to see what actually happens to the benders. And it felt like we were cut two thirds of the way into a story. Um, but yeah, Bender, what a just like like a cardboard character for for somebody. That my one my one complaint is that I didn't feel anything about him. I didn't like him. I didn't dislike him. More that like you had said, he just wasn't painted at all. There was just nothing to that guy. He just wanted to work on his book, and, and that was it. I wanted to feel something. I, I wanted to like the guy, first of all, because he's the protagonist, and that's who we're rooting for. So I wanted to embrace him and love him. But if not, given that, I wanted to at least dislike him a little bit. And he was just kind of bleh. Yeah, I think I'm just walking away from this thinking that the biggest personality in the book is is the ha- is the haunting itself. Yeah, I didn't think I didn't dislike David Bender. I I I did like him. <clears throat> I understood him, and and all the actions he took made sense based on the interior that William Gay portrayed. I just thought uh, the brother-in-law, whose name is slipping my mind right now, I just thought he was painted more colorfully, um, especially since he tries so hard to be such a larger-than-life person and is such a you know, jackass with zero self-awareness. Um, that just made him more, didn't make him more likable. It just made him more colorful. But, but I, I thought David Bender was fairly straightforward. But then again, I, I just kind of wonder how many horror novels have we seen with a writer as a main character? Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe we just, we've just seen it too much. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that was a thought that I had kind of, uh, another parallel. I apologize for drawing another parallel to The Shining, but that fucking um, what's uh, Jack, right? Something. I'm bad. Mm-hmm. I, I hate Stephen King, so um, don't really. I'm not super familiar with his, his books. Um, he was just a vessel for whatever evil that needed to be dumped into him to make him important to the story. Is kind of how I felt about him. That's true. I mean, that's I can see that it wasn't. And you're right. I mean, it is about the haunting. I just I don't know. I guess I wanted to just feel something more about this guy and didn't. Um. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so ending, yeah, the the ending was was really abrupt. God, it's almost like, and, and I, I'm guessing that they kept it pretty true to what they found because you could almost have just thrown one more chapter on there, just another ten pages, and kind of given this a, a, a more significant ending. You know, when you mentioned the pregnant wife, from a time frame standpoint. The first time when, when you know they addressed the fact that she's pregnant and they're talking about it, all I kept thinking is, my God, someone's going to throw that baby in the fire. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's going to be the climax of the book, and yeah, it's just kind of... Damn, that would have been good. <laughs> See, I, it, for me, it, the, the ending felt... It didn't feel abrupt. It, there was a sense of completeness to it. Like, I felt like the thing that he had been setting up for a long time came to pass this thing happened but it's still in comparison with his other stuff not not as firm and definite um so if we're comfortable with with how we with the discussion of the story i know i've got some quotes i don't know if we gave craig 
the opportunity to assemble quotes or if he's got any, but Livius, do you have any? I do. I have a few. Craig, did we, I don't know. I, 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 I know, I know your format and I kind of had in mind to look for quotes. Um, I had a hardcover that I didn't want to annotate, even though I know it's never going to be signed. Um, I just sure. didn't want to mark in it, so I may be able to find some. I was actually trying to go back, and I was unsuccessful in finding parts where I thought there were large sections of prose that weren't as as polished as as in his other work or in other parts of this book. Again, leading me to believe that you know he was he was due what passes at this. Um, I say that with but mad love and respect for Guy and Tosi, who I, who I know very well. But um, you guys go ahead. I'll see if I if it jumped out at me. Rob, go ahead and kick it off. I'm, I'm kind of looking through mine. This is the definition, or this is the description of the house that they ended up staying in when the Bender family comes down to the Beale, um, the Beale property. Part log, part wood frame, part stone. It seemed to have grown at all angles like something organic turned malignant and perverse before ultimately dying for bender saw death in its eyes last year's leaves and driven windrows on the front porch two of the second story windows stone blind or blown out by hunters guns the house seemed mantled with an almost indefinable sense of disillusion profoundly abandoned unwanted shunned but that was a pretty good definition of a house mm-hmm. i agree this first one is kind of short, and it's just a phrase or a concept, I guess, that I really liked. Um, talks about Binder, um, you know, he's working at his job and his wife's pregnant and, and you know, this kind of thing. But the, the, the sentence or the statement that I really liked was Binder was – Binder. See, I called him Binder. I told you it's only a matter of time. You see this word a hundred times a day, and that's how you're going to pronounce it. Binder was living on the edge already and knowing it, knowing that he was spending time like money he might not be able to replace. That's some good shit right there. I like it. This quote, um, I really identified with the parts of the book that that spoke of the house as a being or uh, as an entity. Um, so I like this one. It's pretty quick. He knew in his heart there was no need in hauling a sack of rat poison. He was right, too. They never heard them again. The house was bored with rats. Because there was a, a frightful night. This was with the Swa family where... They thought there was a rat infestation in the house, and it magically disappeared when they went to look for it. So the fact that the house was bored with rats I thought was really cool. It, it's funny. I had I had the presence of mind very late in reading to grab some sticky notes to mark the pages, and I'm looking at these, and most all of these are, are all descriptions of the brother-in-law. Uh, my, my uncle, family out of Oklahoma, has a saying, all hat, no cattle. <laughs> uh, I guess that's a cowboy word for a poser, and, and there's so many variations on this. Um, Vern is the brother-in-law. Vern was successful. He had once been a construction worker a few years ago and had fallen from a rigging off, off a scaffold. Binder had once maintained, not entirely facetiously, that Vern had jumped in order to sue the company. He had won an enormous lawsuit, had even been rolled into the courtroom in a wheelchair, the money was no longer in his hands, and Vern was healed by a traveling evangelist at a miracle bright and incandescent that Bender figured was probably the peak of the faith healer's career. I just love that. Yeah, that was very good. I'm glad you qualified um, geographically the all-hat, no-cattle <laughs> statement. 
gave it a, a piece of uh, of America where that exists. Um, this yeah. goes into something Craig was saying earlier, um, with a little longer quote. Uh, who is this? This might be Cagle. Oh no, this is the the, the real <laughs> estate. That's okay. This is the real estate agent, I think. Um, you take a piece of land, any piece of land, and if a man had the longevity and the inclination to just sit and watch it for 150 years, no telling what he'd see, you'd be surprised. People ain't never been anything else besides people, and ever now and then, they're going to slip up and do the same sickening things folks have been known to slip up and do before. And that don't affect the land, neither. It don't haunt it or cheapen it or wear it out. It's still the same piece of ground it was in the beginning. That goes like directly to what Craig was saying earlier about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. All right. Apparently, I'm in love with the house. <clears throat> Here's another house quote. He slept now when the house slept, as if in some curious way their cycles had become synchronous, catching catnaps in the daytime, dozing in the hot, still honeysuckle afternoons. He knew the house was awake now. He could stand in its center and feel its heart beating around him. Synced with his own breathing when he breathed, feel its attention on him, alert and focused as a cat watching a broken-winged bird. Boom. I, I think um, your citations of, of describing the house I sync up pretty well with the appearance of Vern later on. He, he provides some comic relief because the house is, never looks sunny and open and rustic and quaint. It's always this malignant thing on the, on the landscape. Um, so when we meet Vern, here's, here's my other favorite one. Um, Vern considered himself a ladies' man. It was inherent in the clothes he wore, a kind of pseudo-Western rigging, boots, and a yoke-backed cowboy shirt, jeans riding low on his hips. It was encoded in his very stance, a kind of urban dream of a cowboy's lock-hipped work. The very essence of macho, Bender thought. He is a truck driver without a truck, a cowboy squinting in a carbon monoxide sunset. Yeah, there's there's no question that William Gay can write um, the hell out of a description or yeah. just anything. I mean, it's – I think that, you know, all, and we'll talk about this probably in the wrap-ups, but all story aside, the writing, I mean, carries this pretty, pretty yeah. up. I, I always warn students about, you know, derailing and certainly opening with, with descriptions of, of the weather or the landscape. That's just a sure way to kill a reader or probably get a, just like knock it aside. But William Gay can, can do that for pages. And I am just I am just entranced. I don't know. I get the feeling that William Gay might have had a Vern in his life. No doubt. We Here's all. another one really fast. He goes, somebody says about Vern, your friend here is all mouth and belt buckle. <laughs> oh, man. And that. even later on when he punches Vern, he says he, there's like a there's a moment where he's like he had made sure not to aim for the belt buckle, that belt buckle, man. Right. Yeah. That's even better than all hat, no cattle. All mouth and belt buckle. <laughs> here is... um. Bender, and and just again, just another great concept um, phrasing here. He sat on the sofa smoking, watching the television with the sound off. Late night news, talking heads like prophets gifted with hindsight, mouthing dark forebodings intercut with neon images of random violence. That pretty well sums up 
network television right there. It, I, I 100% agree. But Livy has opened the door to the television, so I have to do the, the Winnie the Pooh video quote. Is that cool? <laughs> um, Please. Easily, like, one of my favorite two parts of the book. I'm not going to give context to how it affects the overall story. I guess it doesn't matter, but I'm not going to because I just love, I fucking, I, I, I sat there and I was just, I had this big grin on my face when I was reading this, and it's kind of perverse when you hear the quote. <clears throat> uh, I'm not setting it up at all, I'm just going right into the action. Piglet drove the axe into Pooh's forehead, rocked it back and forth to dislodge it from the bone that anchored it, swung it savagely again, and Pooh went down, his face pumping blood. Not cotton or styrofoam or other synthetic fiber, but a thick gout of foaming scarlet. Pooh trying to crawl toward the door, and the axe falling metronomically, bisecting a cartoon rendering of flesh and muscle and splintered bone. Tigger making a mad scramble toward the door that the axe suddenly blocked. Some of the most terrifying stuff in the book right there. Um, uh, the last one I have is is, is not an... Oh, sorry? No, no, go ahead. It's going to get the last one I've got I, I like. It was... Um, fight, like, uh, we, we talked about Aaron Swab, uh, the, the surviving descendant, and the very first time we meet him, the, the first line says, Swab was a nightmare waiting for a dreamer, lying sweating on his cot in the humid dark, going through the list he carried in his head. Yeah, I, there's so much just great, great stuff. And that's um, my my next quote is is very similar, kind of describing um, somebody's personality. But this reminded me, there's another thing that happened in this book that we didn't talk about. There are those couple of incidents that happen around town, right around the time of the fire, where it seems mm-hmm. like the whole town is kind of affected in the same way that, that Binder is or that Swa was, you know, or the, the Beals in the long run, which I thought was kind of an interesting take. That felt, and again, I say this because it's what I know, Stephen Kingish. you know, when something happens and it starts to affect the whole town and you get these weird little outtakes. But this is, a, this is from the scene about the, the man who's working on his car, um, whose, whose wife has taken offense with how he treats her. All right. Um, he was never one to tempt fate. It is a fact that a man who will draw to an inside straight will trust a bumper jack. And you know what? I read that and I knew exactly who this guy was, kind of like you were talking about Vern and it being a very familiar character. <laughs> that that spoke to me in, in a great character description, all wrapped up in one single line. You know, and it's funny you, you mentioned the, the, these, these outbursts around the town as being, I, I didn't think of them as Stephen King-esque, but then again, I haven't read enough to really know, but it was just another one of those bits in the book that was so good, but felt incomplete, like we never came to it again. And, and when I look at these things, it's not like I wanted more, or because he mentioned it once, he should mention it again, more like if this had not happened or had not been mentioned, would the story have been any different? And I thought these bits where, where the town folk just start kind of going off on each other, you know, in, in, the, in the peak heat of summer, was really interesting. And like you said, spoke to the haunting sort of leaking out beyond the Beale property. But it didn't seem to be ultimately of any consequence. And I say this with nothing but love for William Gay, just in case I am wrong about my skepticism and I am due to be haunted by the ghost of William Gay. 
Okay, because Maybe. because you said that, did you read all the way to the end with like the the notes that that were at the back of the book and everything? Yeah, and in fact, I I, I was familiar. I didn't realize till I got there, but I'm I'm actually familiar with the original uh, folk legend that he was building the story on. Um. All right. So here's my question. You having said that, um. So. Not only right the the Bell Witch thing is is a legit um, story in in real life, but it also has a personal um, his, his life. It's it's a personal thing in his life too because he knew about it. He went to visit the place and all that stuff with his family. And that last line at the end of that, this kind of a dick move, right? Did anybody else feel like it was a dick uh. move? Because he's basically like, if you think about this too much, maybe it'll come for you. Right, right, okay, yeah, don't look behind you. Yeah, it was basically like, oh man, I just gave you a ghost. I was like, man. <laughs> I didn't know if that was, because um, it's listed as a short story. Are, are we of the, the belief that that is actually William Gay um, autobiographically writing that little piece? I took it as... I, I think, it, yeah, it was it yeah. was an essay reader directly about the source of the, because the, the, the Bell Witch is a... Is a I don't. I don't think it's real, but the, the folklore is is real. Yeah, I'm of the same mind. I thought it was like a, like William Gate, like an essay, like you said on on the, the Bell Witch and and his his personal involvement with the story. All right. Well, Craig, don't look behind you because you pretty loudly just announced that you don't you don't believe. The witch thing. Right. So I guess that's. <laughs> well, if, if 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 I wake up in the middle of the night and there's an old man sitting beside my bed with a cigarette, just staring at the wall, talking in a slow drawl about what was on, you know, the latest movies he watched, you guys will be the first to know. <laughs> oh man, I'm not as saying far I... as ghosts go. It'd be a pretty, you know, agreeable one, I would think. Yeah, I'm not saying I want you to be haunted, but I want to hear that if that happens. <laughs> Um, You'll be the first to know. Cool. Should we uh, should we wrap this up? Um, I think we're at about ninety minutes. It's probably not a bad time to, to, <laughs> to start making some tracks here. So um, uh, I, I can go first if you'd like, Rob. Go for it. Um, this is my introduction to William Gay. Um, the writing is uh, is just absolutely fantastic. Um, although I'm I'm of the same mind as Craig that this was unfinished. I'm not going to fault it for that. Um, that's where you that's where you point fingers at the publisher and say, "Hey, you know what? You had the stuff, and it's great that it's out there, but you you almost have to." I, I think there's a responsibility on the part of the publisher to say, "We found this. It's unfinished. Want to read some really pretty words? Here it is." You know, and and present it that way. Now, that being said, we don't know. Maybe this was 100% complete, and they found it with a little bow tie and a note on it that said, "Send to publisher immediately." Um, but it's not not the feeling that that I get. Um, I like the story. It was uh, it was super creepy. It definitely left me wanting more. There are so many unexplored areas of this, and and some of those, um, you know, we mentioned Corey's um, ability to hear maybe her dad's um, immediate ghost. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was a different ghost. You know, Binder uh, being part of something supernatural in his youth. Um, why the haunting? Um, why the haunting leak out into the town? I mean, there are lots of questions that that remain unanswered and. I'm a little bit of a completist. I'd like to have them all answered for me. I could understand if some of them weren't, but I was left a little wanting. That being said, I don't want to fault the book for that. He created a super creepy environment. 
Um, I really liked the um, flashing back to different hauntings to kind of get more of the story instead of having it all rolled out for you at the beginning and saying, this is all that's happened. Now here's your protagonist, you know, 40 or 50 pages in after I've laid all this groundwork for you to know what he's going through. So, um, uh, my only my only issue with it was I really wanted to like Binder more or Bender. God damn, I'm gonna keep saying it. I really wanted to like Bender more or feel something more about him. So if I gave this one shortcoming, it was um, the books and perhaps whatever my own inability to develop more of a bond um, with the protagonist. So um, that being said, I'm gonna give it four stars. Craig, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to be the guy in the middle, so you're not the first word or the last word if that's what you want to do. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll happily, you know, take that. I'm just, I, I, I again, I, I know your format, but I'm really gun shy about ranking things with stars, just because I live in a glass house. But I, I, my, my ranking is pretty much, you know, would I recommend this? Would I own it? Would I buy it for someone as a gift? Like that's how much I like things when I say, here, you got to read this. So. Um, it felt incomplete to me in terms of certain elements of the story, certain elements, but the story itself did feel complete, even though it was more open-ended than his, his other work. And whether or not that was intentional or not, I don't know. My hunch is that uh, at the end note at the back says it was found amongst his papers and a bunch of people did a lot of transcribing and compiled the thing together. So I think they did what they could with what they had. And the result is a finished novel, not to say that William Gay wouldn't have added more to it. I don't fault the publisher at all, but even incomplete William Gay is a humbling thing to read for a writer. The man is just, just brilliant. And so I highly recommend this and everything else he's written. Excellent. Thank you. Um, like Livius, this is my first William Gay book. It is kind of um, a sad thing to admit because, I mean, here's the thing. Um, I will I will willingly admit that before the podcast, I didn't have the best taste in books, and everything I got that was good I got from Livius. Um, we've been doing this podcast nearly five years now. I'm really putting the cart before the horse on that one because it's still it's like four and a half. But anyway, um, I once we get locked into this whole book review thing, we haven't had much of an opportunity for reading outside books. So once William Gay kind of got on our radar, it was like, oh, well, great. He sounds like an awesome author, but I know I'm never going to have an opportunity. Thankfully, this book was released, um, even though he did pass recently. So we did have an opportunity to read him, and I'm so thankful because... Well, I, was, I can't remember exactly what I said to Livius when we were talking on the phone earlier, but something to the effect of, like, if this if if this is an incomplete work, it's still miles ahead of, of polished work of other authors. The, the, I loved the way that he writes and describes things, and just there's just, like, a nice, comfortable... It's like you're sitting next to a fire hearing someone tell you a story. It's just so engaging. Um, I really loved The Haunting Story, Everything that had to do that was centered around the actual property, you could tell that was where the content was very strong. Um, not to say he doesn't write great characters. I think pretty much everything in this book um, was was good. And if someone picked this up, a casual reader picked this up off the shelf and started the book and read through it, I think they would think it's a fantastic book. So that bears saying because 
what we do for a living, Craig is an amazing writer and he has insight into the process that we don't. Um, we review books so that we, we think of them deeper than probably some people do. So we have a much more critical eye probably than the common reader would. The common reader picking this book off the shelf would probably think it's it's a masterpiece. So um, I think that bears saying, and I personally enjoyed it a lot, and it did freak me out. I think it is why I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, and I'm going to go pretty high on this too. I think I'm going to go – I'm going to beat Livia, so I'm going to go four and a half stars. It's always a contest with you. I'm kidding. <laughs> No, it's great stuff, and and um, as Rob mentioned, I am personally looking forward to reading more William Gay in non-booked time. Um, great, great stuff, and uh, yeah, that's that's it. Great stuff. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> so, Craig, do you have anything that's your personal favorite of William Gay's, or do you, is your recommendation just read anything you can find? Anything you can find, but the, the first one of his I read... <clears throat> um, was Twilight, an unfortunate title. Um, and he's a 30 or 40 books with that title. So that one, that one has a real, real special place. I think I just love that one. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm sorry guys, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and say that one thing I forgot to mention in, in the course of our discussion was that part of what I enjoyed about this was that everything else I've read of William Gaze takes place mid century America or sooner you know, 30s and 40s with occasional backstory in the 17 or 1800s. So it was really fun being in, in William Gayland, like his head, his story, this this backwood, you know, rural haunting story, but then having bits of the 20th century kind of slip slip through, you know, mentioning McDonald's and 7-Eleven and Walmart. It was, it was kind of fun. Nice. I like it. All right, so um, we do have a little business to take care of. Um, Ryan, our marketing intern, you can't see, but I'm doing the quotes with my fingers right now, um, is back to tell you a little bit about things that you can do with Booked. So here is Ryan. Hi, this is Ryan McRae, the Booked Podcast's marketing intern, recording from Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm on vacation. And i just like to say how thrilled I am that the lazy summer is now over. And so these guys are finally getting back to actually reading books and not just talking about Hannibal and other things. So, uh, yeah, if you guys are looking for a great newsletter and a uh, free copy of the booked anthology, you can please, and I beg, please sign up for the newsletter. You can find on bookedpodcast.com. And uh, that's about it. Hope you guys are well, and thanks for listening to the show. Head to bookedpodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. It's at the bottom. Uh, it should kind of be, should kind of be at the top. Should be at the top, but it's at the bottom. But you know, Rob does the website, so yeah. Have a great day, you guys. Bye. All right, so let's let's uh, Ryan. Let me. He's been he's been the marketing intern for like six weeks, right? How is he on vacation already? When was the last time you got a vacation from the podcast? Um, like a couple of weeks ago when um, Jesse – no, no, we they, we recorded the episode in, in my we, living room, right? Yes, we um, did. <laughs> AWP. It was back in March. Yeah, so there's that, and he's already on vacation. At any rate, all the things he said are true, and you can get a free um, ebook copy of the book anthology, which, interestingly enough, contains a story by our guest host. Craig Clevenger's The Confession of Adelaide Shade is in there, and you can actually read that for free um, just by subscribing to the book newsletter. Ryan told you how to do it. 
And Rob, you should move that up the page, apparently. Um, that's not going to happen, but I do want to point out, people who do, who sign up for newsletters are usually like, man, I don't want to get that email all the time. I'm going to tell you how, how much you don't have to worry about it. We haven't even sent out one newsletter yet. <laughs> this is also correct, but we have sent out a number of ebooks, so that happens kind of automatically. That's, that's true. That is true. So, I didn't sign up for the newsletter. I don't want all those emails. You're the you're you're you're, you're what's wrong with this podcast. I am what's wrong. You're with the this problem. Podcast. You're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Craig, we would love to thank you for taking um, a, an enormous amount of time out of your schedule to uh, to review this book with us. Um, but but before we go, you want to do this again next week because we had a ton of fun. Next week's Matt Bell's Scrapper. Are you down? Are you in for this one? Absolutely. I actually just I just finished Scrapper, and uh, uh, yeah, I would love to. And the, the pleasure was all mine. Don't worry about the time. It's Sunday night. John okay. Oliver is in on for a couple hours, so. There you go. What time does he come on at? Because I, I always catch him on YouTube Monday mornings. Um, it's usually on a streaming HBO thing around about 11-ish. Rob, um, are you a John Oliver fan? I, I haven't watched the. I like what I've seen of John Oliver back when he was doing the Daily Show stuff, right? But I have not watched his, his show. Um, but I did notice, Craig, didn't you join something of his? There was like a thing... Our Lady of Perpetual Exemption, his his church that he did to point out how how uh, uh, corrupt evangelists abuse the IRS tax law, and I sent him some money, and uh, um, I got I got the first of what I thought were going to be many junk mailers back from him, but he um, he, he shut the church down, and I think he's giving all the money to Doctors Without Borders. There you go. That's what's great about his show is not only does he, um, I I have a hard time watching the news, mostly um, because of that William Gay quote. So I depend on getting my news from John Oliver, which might not be exactly where I should be getting all of my news. But um, that's pretty much it for me, you know, finding out about big things that are going on in the world. I depend on that guy. So pretty important. Uh, You could probably do worse. I'm sure I could do considerably worse. So like Fox News. So. Yeah. Ugh. Are we going to end the podcast with the words Fox News? That's pretty terrible. No, Rob, say something clever. Craig, say something clever. One of you guys, I'm I'm done. I'm like doing the deer in the headlights now, Rob. It's on you. Son of a bitch, man. All right. So Patreon, if you go to patreon.com slash booked, <laughs> you can um, sign up to, to pledge a monthly amount of money to booked. And, um, Livius and I have been working on some milestone goals. I know we've been saying that for the last year that we've been collecting our money. But, um, uh, oh, and Livius just started talking about, here's the thing. Livius has all the things he wants to do. And if I don't, like, act enthusiastic, he just keeps wanting to do them. Um, But we're talking about shirts again. So booked shirts, that's going to be a thing very, very soon. A somewhat redesigned book shirt, as we agreed to earlier this evening. That's right. So, things things lots of things craig thank you again we'll talk to you next week um until then i'm livia snudden and i'm rob olson keep reading uh but that's cool oh um before i read the synopsis gentlemen i need us to uh come to an agreement on how the last name of the protagonist is pronounced i was reading it binder yeah that's how i read it binder it is i went with binder but (laughs) And I, and I think having a person who writes books being named Binder is a little corny. So I'm sure <laughs> it was 
that's yeah. That's... I'm curious about the character we meet a couple of times <laughs> whose last name appears to be, my guess is it's spelled with a C, but it's pronounced Kegel. And I had to put the book down and, and just, it, it really kind of broke the spell. There's a, a guy named Kegel. So I just... <laughs> I just, I just imagine he's sitting there like clinching, you know, while he talks to people and no one knows us. It was really distracting. Maybe, maybe William Gay put us all on with these, with these names. Maybe it is Binder and Kegel, and maybe that's, maybe that's what he was going for. <laughs> he just wanted everybody to know yeah, that, that guy was be. really, was really uptight or something. <laughs> but I'm going to go with Binder. All right, cool. 